0: Systems podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. These days, primary care is all about teamwork. We're asking ourselves, how can we make our teams function better? And a question we should ask but often don't, should this task actually be done by the team? Our guests this weekend next, Ann O'Malley and Patricia Satterstrom, join us for a two week series about teams and help us start to answer some of these questions. Patricia, who goes by Pat, is an assistant professor at the NYU Wagners Graduate School of Public Service and an affiliate of the Management and Organizations Department at the NYU School of Business. She studies how to enable team members to collaborate despite power differences and how to facilitate improved collaboration in healthcare organizations. Anne O'Malley is a physician and a senior fellow with Mathematica Policy Research. Her work focuses on quality of care and primary care. And part of our research, which we focus on in this series, involves qualitative interviews with primary care stakeholders on teamwork. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show. Share us on social media with your friends and colleagues. We love hearing from you, so tweet us at ROSPodcast or at HMS primary care. We got some great comments from folks on Twitter about teamwork that we're including in the series, so thank you to everyone who commented. Or if you're not on Twitter, you can drop me a line at contact.rospod.org or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening. Anne and Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's nice you. to be here. Thank you. So, we've got to start from the beginning with some definitions. Pat, from where you sit in the business world looking at healthcare, uh, how would you define a team? And then Anne, of course, we'll go to you, but maybe we'll, we'll start with Pat.
1: Sure. So the definition that we use for teams is just a way of getting started. So it is a bounded and stable set of individuals interdependently working for a common purpose. And we use that definition because it's actually really difficult to achieve and it gives us some room to think about whether or not we should have a team and if those conditions are unmet, what could we do?
0: Okay. And Anne?
2: The I guess the simplest way to state what a team is in primary care is at least two health professionals working with patients, their families or caregivers um, to meet the patient's comprehensive health care needs.
0: And so, you know, both of you, you know, work in this kind of more academic theoretical world and then in the real world. Uh, so so, how do those definition definitions square with the reality of what you've seen and in your clinical work and the research you've done?
2: Uh, sure, so, you know, in, a, in the kind of the, the, the literature on teamwork and primary care, y- you often hear about, you know, you know, several people being members of the team, and they can get quite expansive. Um, I think in reality what we see, you know, when we visit pr- primary care practices or do interviews with primary care practices of um, is that, you know, the, the most common kind of um, structure of a primary care team is typically the clinician, most often the physician, or it could be a nurse practitioner uh, or PA. Um, and the medical assistant. So Mm -hmm. that's that kind of dyad between the physician and medical assistant. In some cases, if they can afford a nurse at the practice, it may be a medical assistant um, in addition to them. And then you see them growing as resources grow. Um, So over the years, uh, as more different types of professionals start to become incorporated in the the primary care team, um, you see the front desk staff being given enhanced roles, nurse care managers starting to become members of primary care teams, uh, clinical social workers, community navigators, nutritionists, pharmacists, and others. But uh, you know those tend to be in the much more heavily resourced practices, um, and particularly in practices that might be part of medical home demonstration projects. Hmm. And I think the other thing that I want to mention is that the, the patients are really key members of the primary care team. Um, you know both in terms of engaging engaging in their own personal care um, but in also in terms of providing practices with feedback or input on how the practice could improve uh, the way it does things and so there's been a big you know over the last decade or so there's been a lot of work around, incorporating patients, um, through practice, uh, surveys of patients. Um, but, but increasingly there are more nuanced ways to kind of engage patients as part of that team, mm. um, through things like patient and family advisory councils. So there's, there's a lot of movement afoot there.
0: Okay. And Pat, in your work in the healthcare setting, how would you say that the reality of what you see is reflective of the definitions you, got, you look at in your research?
1: So I would say that the bounded part is difficult for some organizations. Hmm. The stable part is difficult, but if the interdependent part isn't there, then I really think a lot of these teams that are being used should not be used. Hmm. So in my research, one of the first things that we do is we see what is the goal of the work and do we need a team? And a lot of the times the answer is we do not. And a lot of the teams that are being called teams in primary care are not actually teams. They're groups that are doing sequential interdependence or pooled interdependence. For example, sequential interdependence is when work that one person does gets passed on to the other person, which then gets passed on to the other person, and then the work is completed, um, an assembly line. Pooled interdependence is when someone... uh, a group of people do work, and then they give it to some sort of manager or leader, and that person puts it together, and that's the work that is delivered. And there's a lot of work that shows how you optimize these processes, but this is not teams. Oh. And a lot of the times when I go into organizations, there's like the basics aren't there. And there's so much complications and emotions and frustrations because the basics aren't in place. They're not actually using teams and they're not relying on the 70 years seventy years of academic research that we have on how we optimize different processes. Teams are just one of many processes. So I guess what my takeaway would be is understanding when you have a team, when you need a team, um, when you can organize the work in different ways and there are ways of having a team, even if it's not bounded, even if it's not stable. There's a lot of cool research on scaffolds that have been done in healthcare organizations that have improved effectiveness um, by a really significant margin. But if we don't know the basics, if we can't define what a team is versus what a group is versus, say, something like sequential interdependence or pool interdependence, then you're going to have a really frustrated group of people from the start.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we'll come back to that. But, Anne, I wanted to go to a paper that you published in 2014 called Overcoming Challenges to Teamwork in Patient-Centered Medical Homes, a Qualitative Study. It was published in JGEM. And in it, you and your colleagues interviewed about 60 stakeholders. And so much of what they said really spoke to me and my experiences working on teams in primary care. They identified five categories of challenges to teamwork in the primary care setting which were like a lot of what pat was just talking about setting goals division of labor communication systems and training so okay. obviously we don't have time to go through all of them but i thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about the challenges of the uh, del- division of labor and some of the systems challenges Sure.
2: So so the five things you just mentioned were are actually part of a framework developed by Tom Bodenheimer and mm-hmm. Gorub. Um, and so we organized our findings within that framework. So, so they initially um, kind of developed that as kind of the, a very clinically relevant way to think about teamwork in primary care. In terms of division of labor, Clearly, defining the roles and responsibilities of each person on the team is really vital. Traditionally, you know, in medical school, I was in residency. I wasn't taught how to be part of a team in the outpatient setting. You know, in the inpatient setting or in the surgical setting, you're you're really part of a team. But in the outpatient primary care setting, um, we we didn't learn that. Um, So to to function efficiently and improve patient care, it's important that each person on the team knows not only what his or her own role is, but what the roles and expectations are for others. Um, And this becomes increasingly important as we recognize that the primary care clinician cannot do everything him or herself. So, you know, as we see, the size of teams uh, are expanding. Um, Some of this expansion is to ensure that the physicians um, or nurse practitioners work at the top of their license and spend less time on documentation or clerical activities. But some of this expansion um, also recognizes that there are other important roles that can contribute to monitoring and engaging patients in their own care. For example, by having patients with chronic conditions or who have mental and behavioral health needs interact with people who have really special training in that. So nurse care managers or behavioral health staff who... Who have been trained in motivational interviewing? Who have been trained in helping patients think about, let's get what are the practical ways we're going to achieve the goals that you set with your doctor? Um, doing patient education um, in, in the case of clinical social workers or other behavioral health, doing c- cognitive behavioral therapy, or you know helping patients navigate the health system. So, so those are all different roles that are kind of becoming part of primary care teams. And unless each member of that team understands what those other people are doing, it can get, it can get very confusing and patients can be, you know, referred to the wrong person or people can be under or overutilized within the team.
0: Right. Okay. Pat, so I want to go back to you and um, ask you to talk a little bit more about differentiating between how you were talking about distinguishing work that needs to or should be done in a team versus sequenced work or I, I forget the third word that you had used. Pooled interdependence. Pooled interdependence. Uh, can you talk about that a little more? Sure.
1: So when I teach um, people who are going into positions to that say run hospitals or oversee um, groups of nurses, one of the first things that we cover is when to have a team and when not to have a team. And the majority of the time after we've discussed it usually comes down to not having a team because a team is not the best way of doing the work so it's a matter of knowing what your goals are and then trying to figure out what the best um, group or system or process is to then meet the goals and teams are really catchy like the word is catchy it becomes really popular Um, there's been research showing how it and it uh, becomes popular in an industry and then over time in 10 years, you see it all over that industry's material and their brochures. Um, this has happened across a number of industries and it was funny to document what that looks like in healthcare because it went from not being teams to all of a sudden teams become this huge, um, important component which I think to some extent is right and to some extent is not right. Um, so for example, you wanna have a team when you have ongoing interdependence, that means that you cannot achieve the goal with individuals working on their own. They can't just pass along information to each other and achieve the goal. There has to be active, ongoing interdependence between those people.
0: Can you give and, an and or? Can you sure. give an example of
1: what that means? Sure. Be? For example, um, in one of the first clinics that I um, visited and did a short observation. Um, Uh, these different um, managers kept telling me about their teams of uh, therapists actually Um, they had six people and on Monday one person worked, on Tuesday another person worked on Wednesday a third person worked and so on Um, and this was a residency and so each person needed to kind of staff the, the, the clinic and they kept referring to this as a team. And I'm like, there's nothing team about this. This is a group of people who are carrying out their work and then they're giving you information and you're all participating and taking care of these patients, but you're not a team. You're a pulled interdependence. You're kind of doing work on your own um, and it doesn't actually require a team versus, um, much as like Anne was describing, when you have a physician and a medical assistant and a nurse, um, and you are responsible for the same group of patients, and there's no way for the physician to do the work without getting specific information that the nurse has, and there's no way for the nurse to do her work without the medical assistant doing a specific screening process. At that point, we talked We talk about interdependence that is um, necessary, and it's bounded. It's the same group of people, and people know who's in and who's out, and it's stable um, because it's generally the same group. So um, at that point, we can now start talking about teams and best practices for teams. Hmm. Um, If we're not at that point, then we really need to talk about best practices for a different kind of process.
0: Right. Huh. When, uh, when you've written and spoken about teamwork in the healthcare and specifically the primary care context, one of the constructs you've spoken about are Hackman's conditions for team success, which include, and I was actually really struck when reading this about how similar they were to some of the themes um, that Anne pulled out in the yes. from the Bodenheimer and Gorham construct of um, a team being a real team. This concept of interdependence, I think, is really interesting and important and Having the right people uh, working in a compelling direction, having an enabling structure and an operating and a supportive organizational context and with some expert coaching available. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is a sound structure for a team? How does one achieve that? Sure.
1: So to take a step back, the way we use this construct is we talk about the essentials and the enablers. The enablers are things that make a good team a great team. So as you mentioned, the right people having a real team, team coaching. The essentials are investments, sound structure, compelling direction, supportive context. Research suggests if you cannot invest in these, you should not have a team because it will be more work and more frustration than the benefits that it will provide. Hmm. Um, So for sound structure, it generally is composed of four things, size, diversity, fault lines, and norms. Um, And so some of this really echoes what Anne found because um, when we talk about size, for example, um, I think that's one of the easier ones to understand, we talk about the importance of the relationship between people. So for example, um, how much effort does it take to have a good relationship between a physician and the nurse? It takes effort, it takes time, it takes communication. So that's one link between two people. Once you jump to say four people, now you have six links, six relationships that you're managing. By the time you hit 10 people that's 45 links that's 45 relationships that you're managing Hmm. which in most situations is too much it's more than um, a team leader and a group of well-meaning people can generally handle so a lot of the team's research suggests are even if you have a team think about the right size for it and one of the hardest things about being a team leader is saying no is saying actually You're not a core group member. And then it becomes a matter of how do you think about this politically? How do you think about what is your core group that's going to be effective? And then how do you create um, consulting relationships with other key members? Uh, Much like Anne was saying, the people on the team, they're going to be more people, there are going to be more technicians, there's going to be more specialists, there's going to be more people who ha- should have a seat in the table, but then how you have that seat at the table really has a big impact on the effectiveness of the team. Right. Uh, in terms of diversity, we again often think about four types of diversity. We talk think about functional diversity, demographic diversity, cognitive diversity, and personality diversity. Uh, healthcare is all over the functional diversity. They understand that different professions need to be brought together. Mm-hmm. They're, I think, maybe less um, have had less experience thinking through demographic diversity. So demographic diversity is anything you find on the on, on the census: uh, race, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic background, language fluency. Um, The third one is cognitive, so thinking styles and how critical those are to manage on a team, so the person who is detail oriented versus a big picture person and what kind of balance you think you need to think about on the team, and then personality differences. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, the clinics are so constrained in terms of time, they're just like, there's no way we could think through this, but really, if you take a step back, there are ways of thinking through some of these. Um, It's just not done. And then um, I'll just say one word about fault lines and norms. so fault lines are this idea that um, much like in earthquakes there exist faults in the um, on in, in, in plates that if you know certain conditions are met, they will erupt and cause an earthquake and cause everything to go wrong mm. in teams there's also this idea of fault lines when you have two or more kind of overlapping characteristics there's bound to be tension and conflict. So for example, if all your doctors on the team are white females and all of your nurses on the team are, um, you know, uh, Hispanic um, women um, who, um, for instance, come from a certain neighborhood. So once you have two or generally three, but two or more kind of characteristics, be they functional or cognitive or structural, and you're, you and, you, and you're and you not actively managing those fault lines, then you're probably gonna have an eruption. Right. Um, so a lot of the times people think about how do you prevent that? And then norms, I, there's so much on norms. I won't say much on norms, but it's this idea that if you've had conversations about what you do when things go wrong, when you hit those moments of things going wrong, they're much easier to deal with than if you wait to have those conversations when things actually start going wrong.
0: Hmm. So, a lot of these themes came out in the comments that people made uh, on Twitter. So Wando Olewala, a guest we've had on the on the podcast previously, she said, you know, teams can be incredible in helping getting us to the top of our license, but they are hard to form, cultivate, and use effectively because we often don't take the time needed to invest. Stronger teams lead to better work for docs, not more work for docs. And then going along with what you had said about if teams aren't used correctly or in the right context when they actually should be. They just make more work for people. And I got a comment from someone on email uh, about teams. They say it's supposed to make my job easier, but it doesn't. In huddle, oftentimes they recommend things that aren't clinically appropriate, like, you know, it's not enough just to see when the last colonoscopy was. You have to see if they had a polyp, and if so, what kind it was, because it might be five years. And if I ask one of them to call back a patient to review finger sticks, it takes three weeks to hear back. It's easier just to do it all myself.
2: Yeah, we hear that a lot. This is Suzanne, We hear yeah. that a lot from practices, um, from from docs, um, and particularly those who are just starting to kind of try to, to emphasize team functioning more as effective teams. Um, and in, in that particular example, I think the physician really needs to provide his or her feedback on these concerns to the other team members, right. um, make sure that they understand how soon they need to be completed. They um, they also have to speak up when others are making recommendations. Thing for things that maybe are overly simplistic, um, and you know don't consider the patient's medical history. But you can't expect somebody um, who doesn't have that same clinical background as a physician to know that information. Mm-hmm. So clearly, the practice has to set up mechanisms by which the roles and responsibilities are delegated in a way that res- that respect. The, you know people's clinical experience so it's not enough to just say just because you haven't had a colonoscopy in the last five or ten years you have to have another one you have to obviously look at the patient's history and so you either need to train the team members who are going to be looking at those things to do that um, or you need to create systems that kind of pick up when when those exceptions occur and people are looking at recommended guidelines right. um, ass- assuming that the other staff members are competent and have been sufficiently trained to do these tasks, then I know that I, as a physician, then I need to develop confidence that I can trust these people to do these other things, I don't have to control everything, and once I see them carrying out their roles effectively and in a way that saves me time and ensures high quality care, I'm much more willing to kind of let go of those tasks and let let that person take on that, that larger role.
0: Right. Okay, we're going to stop there for the week, but please tune in next week to hear more of the conversation with Anne O'Malley and Pat Satterstrom. You've been listening to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu and click on podcast at the top for more information about our guests, Drs. O'Malley and Satterstrom, and links to their papers that we discussed, as well as the Bodenheimer and Edwards paper that we've referenced on the show. If you enjoyed, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show. Share us on social media, tweet us at ROSpodcast or HMS Primary Care, or you can drop me a line at contact.rospod.org. Thanks for listening.